You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, if you're using the church Bible, the reading uh, is on page 1132. Uh, It is Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, part of which we've just been singing. The title of the sermon uh, is something to boast about. While you're turning there, uh, I'm also reminded this morning of an occasion in my life, newly married, 1972, opened my monthly bank statement. I think it was from the bank that later described itself as the bank that likes to make things disappear. I think meaning they were charging low interest rates, and uh, this was 1972. There was £10,000 more in my bank account than I had put into it. For those of you who don't remember 1972, that would have bought two very nice houses in 1972, and I thought, I've heard of this kind of thing happening to Christian believers, but I never expected it would happen to me. And being a pessimist, I phoned up the bank just to check up. And uh, this was the quickest return call I think I ever had from a bank thanking me for pointing out their error. (laughs) So I'm not building up my hopes about these coins I was telling the children about. Well, Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11. Therefore, says Paul, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since now we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life, his resurrection life, presumably. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Many years ago, I had the privilege of speaking at a missions conference in a church in the southern United States, and to that missions conference, the church had invited two pastors 
from the old Soviet bloc countries. Uh, you didn't need to be introduced to them to distinguish them. They had brought their best clothes, but their clothes were very modest. And indeed, they, they looked spare and drawn. And uh, as a Western affluent Christian speaking to them, uh, you couldn't help feeling unworthy to tie up their shoelaces. Uh, there was a grace, a quality. There was a character, as Paul hints here in Romans chapter 5, about uh, these men who had suffered much for the sake of the gospel. And during one of the lulls in the conference, uh, the two pastors were taken to a local supermarket. Uh, many of you have visited the United States. You know what American supermarkets are like. Uh, everything is bigger. Everything is brighter. The apples seem to be twice the size. They are specially polished. If I may say something not to be recorded, they don't usually taste as good as Scottish <laughs> apples. But that notwithstanding, when for the first time you go into an American supermarket, it can be overwhelming, even if you come from Scotland. And these men looked at the supermarket and they burst into tears. It was the shock of the plenty by comparison with what they had all their lives actually experienced. And, and one of them turned around and said, is this store owned by the government? He just couldn't imagine that ordinary people could walk into a place like this and have anything they wanted from this superabundance. And something struck me very forcefully at the time. Here were these men who had so little who were overwhelmed by these privileges. And yet at the same time, when I met them, I realized that spiritually they had so much. And by comparison, I and many of my friends, people in our congregation, were actually living the Christian life way below the level of the privileges that have been given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Little sense of the marvels of God's grace. And I think at least from time to time all of us find that that comes home to us with fresh power. That there are treasures, there are riches in the gospel. Christ is the peril of great price for whom someone finding him would be willing to sell everything. By comparison with Christ, says Paul, I count everything as the garbage that's taken out uh, every week or every two weeks. He is such a rich savior. And yet I think it's true as you read through the New Testament that the pastors of the New Testament, the apostles, were conscious that even in the fresh light and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, some members, in some instances many members of the congregations to which they wrote, were actually living way below the level of their privileges. 
They had riches in Christ, and yet they were living the Christian life as though it were a small thing and an impoverished thing, living like paupers in a kingdom of spiritual riches. And it's partly within that context as in this great master exposition of the gospel in Romans, Paul comes to this stage where he has expounded all that Jesus Christ has done for us. That there is this kind of pause in which he stands back and says, now let's admire what this means to us. Let's luxuriate for a moment in the riches of the gospel that are ours in Jesus Christ. And he uses a verb that you'll have noticed in our reading uh, recurs like a major punctuation mark in these 11 verses, Romans 5, 1 through 11. It's the word that's translated in the New International Version by the verb rejoice. He says here in verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And in verse 11, we rejoice in God Himself. Translation into one language from another is always difficult because words stretch in meaning. But the language Paul uses here, he has used several times already in his letter to the Romans, where it customarily has been translated boasting. And he has been speaking to people who boast in their own accomplishments to prove to them that they have nothing to boast about. When he speaks about the fact that before the judgment throne of God, every mouth is shut and the whole world is held guilty before God, we have we have no possibility of extenuating circumstances for the guilt of our rebellion against Him, our disinterest towards Him. We have nothing to say. For the first time in our lives, when we see ourselves before God's judgment throne, we stop speaking. We stop arguing. We stop excusing ourselves. We put our hands up. And we say, guilty as charged. And so, the apostle goes on to say, boasting is excluded. He even uses Abraham as an example in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, if Abraham had accomplished his own salvation, Abraham, our father, would have had something to boast about. But Abraham has nothing to boast about, he says. Because, of course, Abraham was justified before God, not by what he did, but by what God did. And so, every time Paul uses this verb that the Roman readers would have been sensitive to, it comes with this negative connotation. It's like a refrain running through the first four chapters. You've got nothing to boast in, nothing to boast in, nothing to boast in. But now that he has interjected the glory of the gospel, what Christ has done for us, he says, now that Christ is on your lips, now that Christ is in your heart, there is something to exult in 
There is something to boast about. There is something that makes you walk tall in the world. And he's giving us a little analysis of this in three movements to show us the marvel of what it means to be a Christian, to grasp what it means to belong to Jesus Christ and to have our hearts lifted up with the joy of the gospel. First of all, he says in verse 2, since we have been brought into this new relationship to God, since we have this access into his presence, and we're able to stand there, to stand before his holy throne, he says the first thing that happens is we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Actually, that's been another theme that he's been working through. Remember how in chapter 1 he says the, the original problem with man was that he exchanged the glory of God and started looking downwards and inwards to worship created things rather than the glorious creator. He makes a fascinating comment in chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, we have all sinned and as a result. Now, I would complete that sentence by saying, we've all sinned and as a result, we've clearly broken the law of God. We've been bad. That's not what Paul says. What he says is, we have all sinned and we have lost the destiny for which God created us. We have all sinned and we have fallen short. We've missed out on the glory of God that we were created to admire and to reflect and to enjoy and ultimately to enter. And now he says in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ has taken our shame in our sin on the cross. Now in Jesus Christ, this is given back to us. We are given in Christ the hope of seeing and sharing the glory of God. And he says we rejoice in this. We, we exult in this. We, we boast about what God has done for us in Christ. He's given back to us the hope of sharing the glory of God. Of course, the reason for that is, as he said in the opening words, we have been justified through faith in Christ. That means that the guilty verdict that God would pronounce on my life at its end has already been pronounced on Jesus Christ. And the guilt-free verdict that I could never hope to attain he has already pronounced on me the moment I came to faith. The future judgment is already past for the Christian in Jesus Christ. The Christian knows that when he or she stands before the throne of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they are as safe before God's judgment as Jesus himself because they are clothed in his righteousness. 
The fear of the future has gone. The prospect of doom has gone. It's been taken by Christ. And now he has given to us the righteousness of God so that we can have access into his presence and having access into his presence. This is the amazing thing. Do you notice in the Bible when people come into the presence of God, they tend to fall down. And actually they tend to fall forwards. But Paul says because of the gospel, when we come into the presence of God as justified people, we are able to stand. Because we are those who rejoice in, who boast in, who exult in the hope of glory. And if you know your New Testament, you know that hope in the New Testament is not wishful thinking. Will it be dry tomorrow? I hope so. No, hope in the New Testament is being absolutely sure of something you haven't yet fully experienced. And so this is the present position of the Christian believer. He or she rejoices in the hope of the glory of God, and that shines a bright light on the whole of life. An interesting thing, I think, is if you have an unbelieving friend who knows that you have this hope, this joy, this certainty about the future, they could understand why you would rejoice. They understand if they had that assurance, they would rejoice. And so even if they don't, even if they despise the gospel, they can understand that if you had that assurance, then you would rejoice. And so that's understandable. But the second thing that Paul says is actually remarkable. He says we not only rejoice in our hope of the glory of God, but in verse 3 he says, and as Christian believers, we also rejoice in our sufferings. You notice how he introduces this. Not only is that so, but something even bigger is true. Now, we understand that. It's one thing to rejoice in the certainty of your final salvation. It's another thing altogether in many senses, a far more remarkable thing that as a Christian believer, you would rejoice in the midst of your sufferings. So, how is this possible? Well, he explains it to us. It's not because he likes pain. Actually, remember in 2 Corinthians 12, when he had pain, he pleaded that it would be removed from him. He liked Dr. Luke to be around him. When Timothy, his young friend, had tummy problems, he said, stop drinking water and take some wine for your tummy's sake. He he didn't enjoy pain for pain's sake, but he was able to rejoice in suffering because he knew, he understood the way in which God uses suffering in the lives of his people to put glory into them. Now, under the first point, he'd said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Under the second point, he says, I want you to see that what God does in our lives through affliction 
leads us to the same place. Look at what he says. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope of what? Hope of the glory of God. And you see why this is so. It is because in the New Testament, the relationship between suffering, trials, afflictions, and glory is not just that glory follows suffering, but that in His purposes, God uses suffering to create glory. Think of the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Why is He so glorious? Because of all that He has gone through in His suffering. One of the privileges of belonging to a congregation where there are older people, if I may say so now that I'm actually one of them, is when you're in a congregation, I know congregations where nobody is over 30 and where statistically people die. There are very few funerals. And very few people have grown very much in grace. And so if you're younger, you never see what grace does in somebody who has really suffered. But when you do, you, you begin to see as a Christian that it puts, it puts a touch of glory into them. It, uh, it creates the friction that polishes their graces. That's what Paul is saying here. And he says the marvelous thing about this is that this hope of glory which this suffering leads to, notice what he says in verse 5. He says, this hope doesn't disappoint us. I'm tempted to say, hands up, if you're a person, all of whose hopes have been fulfilled. I wouldn't expect any hands to go up. We're here as a group of people whom life at various points has disappointed where people have disappointed, where we have disappointed ourselves and disappointed others. So, what is there about this hope that will never disappoint us? How can we know that? You know, a new Christian, and you think this is a great hope, but how do I know that this hope is really going to be fulfilled? He gives us the answer. He says, this hope of sharing the glory of God never disappoints us because the love of God has already been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What's he saying? Let me put it like this. Heaven, heaven is a world of glory. And heaven is a world of perfect glory because heaven is a world where God's love for His people, for angels and saints, where, where that love is everywhere, where that love is unsullied, where that love is fully experienced. That's what heaven is. But Paul is saying, God has not only sent, the Father has not only sent His Son to bring us salvation, He sent His Spirit. It's almost as though He's, he's poked a little hole in the in the floor of heaven, 
and said to his Holy Spirit, now, when you go down and dwell in their hearts, I want you, I want you to bring with you some of this love that the saints and the angels and the archangels experience in my presence. And I want you to take that right down and I want you to flood their little hearts with a sense of that glory. That's what happens to Christians. I don't know that Paul is saying you live in this consciousness emotionally throughout the whole of your Christian life. I doubt that he means that. But there are those senses of just being overwhelmed by this love. Don't we sing a song that begins such love, amazing love. And it's, it's not just hoped for in the future. That's, you know, that's what people trot out every Christmas, the famous ones who are interviewed. I just wish the world would love itself or love others or whatever nonsense. That's wishful thinking. That's hope that's going to be disappointed. But the Christian believer can be sure of that hope of glory being fulfilled because a touch of that glory has already invaded their hearts. Heaven, those of us who are older, we used to sing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. If you are interested in fishing, one book that you may know, it's the fishing equivalent of Mrs. Beaton's cookbook, is called The Complete Angler, written by a 17th century man called Isaac Walton, who also wrote little biographies of great Christians. One of them was a man called Richard Sibbs, and of him he wrote this, of that blessed man let this just praise be given, that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. That's what Paul is speaking about here. He's speaking about the certainty of heaven being such an assurance because we've already tasted it now. It's not just Richard Sibbs about whom we can say heaven was in him before he was in heaven. It's about every believer, Paul is saying. And so we have this amazing privilege that we see, we can be privileged to see this in the saints, that they rejoice not only in the, in the hope of glory, but they rejoice in their sufferings because they know that through that suffering, the Lord is actually creating glory in them. And they know that this hope will not be a hope that will disappoint them because they've already begun to experience its reality. So, the first punctuation mark is wonderful, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And I think even a even a fair-minded unbeliever could understand that. The second is remarkable and very difficult for an unbeliever to understand it. But the third punctuation mark is incredible and actually impossible for someone who isn't a Christian believer to understand. What is it? It's this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that they 
will be used to create glory. And thirdly, we rejoice in God Himself. Just Himself. Not for what He gives me, but because of who He is, who gives to me what He gives me. What does He give to me? Well, Paul is at pains to point out it's love, isn't it? We rejoice in God Himself because we understand, we sense, we experience in our hearts the reality of His love. How do you measure love? Measure love in four ways, according to what Paul says here. First of all, you measure it by the greatness of the person who shows it to you. I love you, well, that's fine. One of the great one loves you, that's amazing. This is the great one who's shown his love. This is not your peer. This is not your friend. It's not a member of your family. Not somebody to whom you've taken a liking. This is the God who created the universe. He is the one who loves. So the greatness of the love is shown by the greatness of the person who shows the love. Second, the greatness of the love is shown by the unworthiness of the person who receives the love. And Paul is at pains to point this out, isn't he? He says in verse 6, we, we are weak and we are ungodly. And in verse 8, he says, we are sinners. And in verse 10, he says, we are enemies. I can understand the Father loving His eternal Son. But Paul is saying, the wonder of our God is that He loved us when we were weak and helpless and ungodly and when we were enemies. That's an amazing stretch of love, down to where I am. And thirdly, the measure of love is the costliness of the gifts it gives. We understand that too. You know, you're about to get engaged and uh, your fiancé gives you a plastic ring that he got out of his Christmas cracker and uh, your instinct is to say, is that all? (laughs) Bye-bye. You don't really love me at all. If you really loved me, you would love me enough to hurt where it hurts, particularly there. Well, the Father has loved you where it hurts. He gave His Son to the cross. He didn't spare Him, Paul will later say in Romans 8, 32. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2, I can't get over this. I who was weak and helpless and ungodly, a sinner at enmity with God, the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. And yes, there's another way we measure love. It's revealed in the effects it produces on us. And Paul says, here's the effect. He says, we rejoice in God Himself. That's that's not only admirable and remarkable, it's really unbelievable that we rejoice in God Himself because of who He is. And all of these treasures, the hope of glory, 
the transformation through sufferings, the love of God poured into our hearts and our rejoicing in God just because of the kind of God He is. These, says Paul, are the, the riches of our lives, and we need to spend them. These are the treasures, and we need to enjoy them. These are the privileges. We need to live in them. There was an elderly lady uh, in a church I served in the past who told me that uh, when her mother was a young girl, she was a factory girl, and Friday, they always get paid on a Friday, she'd come out of the factory, there was a beggar sitting at the side there. He was there every Friday, and she would she'd throw in a shilling or whatever it was. I mean, we're talking 19 twenties. And then one day she came out and the beggar wasn't there. She discovered the beggar had died. And as the authorities investigated the beggar who had died, they discovered that he was actually the heir in the 1920s to over a million pounds. And he had lived all of his life way below the level of his privileges. You know, there's one thing I think I can be sure of this morning. You are doing the same thing. I am doing the same thing. We're all living. We wouldn't be living the way we're living if we were living at the level of the privileges that have been given to us. So, what's our response to be? Well, it's not to go home and say, I need to do better, is it? It's not to go home and say, I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. No, it's to grasp what the privileges are. And the thing about these privileges is that they themselves lift you up to the level of love for which the Savior has redeemed you. I fear I'm going to be disappointed about these coins of mine because I'm a pessimist. But the gospel is a hope that never, ever, ever disappoints. Heavenly Father, fill our vision with a sense of the privileges that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us not to be so gloomy and doom-laden that we think it would be sinful to luxuriate in them. Help us to do that. And as they as they wave over us like giant sea waves. We pray they would also, like sea waves, carry us along in their strength and power to live for your glory. We thank you for Christ, in whom you have shown us all these things. In his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org.
www.ofcc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.